Good evening. Thanks for watching NTD Business. I'm Paul Graney. Coming up this evening. The Biden administration is racing to avert a rail shutdown. It's hosting talks with railroad and union officials. Mortgage demand plummets. Mortgage interest rates have surged above 6%. America's national debt is now closing in on $31 trillion. We take a deep dive looking at what this means for the country and future generations. With that and much more coming up on NTD Business. It's great to have you with us. An update on the potential railroad strike that could disrupt freight across the United States. U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh today hosted talks in Washington with freight railroad and union officials. The aim is to avert a rail shutdown looming as early as Friday. Could disrupt cargo shipments and impede food and fuel supplies. Zachary Goldman reports. Racing to head off a potentially catastrophic railway shutdown that could come as early as Friday, U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh hosted representatives from both railroads and freight train worker unions in Washington Wednesday, searching for common ground. Railroads including Union Pacific, Berkshire Hathaway, CSX and Norfolk Southern have until a minute after midnight on Friday to reach tentative deals with three holdout unions representing about 60,000 workers. President Joe Biden's administration said it was making contingency plans over fears the labor strife could snarl deliveries of critical goods. We're going to be very honest. A, sh- a shutdown would have a tremendous impact. Here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. The shutdown is not acceptable. That is not something uh, that we want. It risks harming families. It risks harming, uh, harming businesses and whole communities. And we have made that clear empathetically and repeatedly uh, to both parties. A shutdown could freeze almost 30% of U.S. cargo shipments, stoke inflation, impede supplies of food and fuel, cost the U.S. economy about $2 billion per day, and cause transportation woes. If agreements are not reached, there could be union strikes or employer lockouts. But the railroads and unions could also agree to stay at the bargaining table, or the Democratic-led U.S. Congress could intervene by extending talks or establishing settlement terms. And just to let you know, almost a quarter of U.S. grain shipments start with the railroad. The energy sector? It relies on rail to move coal, crude oil, ethanol, and other important products. Another concern is transporting hazardous materials. Some fear dangerous cargo could be left stranded in unsafe locations if the rail traffic is halted. On Monday, railroads just stopped accepting shipments for hazardous materials such as chlorine. Unions in the current talks have been offered significant pay increases, but they're grappling with railroad operators over working conditions that they say have worsened after the industry slashed its workforce by almost 30% over the past six years. Railway workers at one smaller union have rejected a tentative agreement with the biggest railroads. That union represents about 5,000 machinists, mechanics, and maintenance workers, very important people. It says the biggest roadblock isn't about pay, it's about attendance policies. The union said members are concerned that the railroad's policies will punish them for taking unscheduled sick days. The railroads, on the other hand, say they have the right to decide attendance policies and to discipline workers. The union is one of 10 labor groups negotiating with the railroads. Two others have also raised issues with attendance policies. We'll keep you updated on that important story. Meanwhile, U.S. producer prices fell for a second straight month in August, mostly thanks to dropping gas prices. 
The producer price index measures inflation from the business's perspective, not your perspective, tracks inflation before it hits you. Some economists look at the month-over-month decline as good news, but the so-called core PPI that excludes food and energy prices, it rose for a second straight month. That suggests underlying inflationary pressures may be building again. Meanwhile, as the Federal Reserve tries to keep raising rates to fight inflation, mortgage rates have been going up too. The average interest rate for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage has topped 6%. That's the highest level since 2008, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association. High interest rates are denting home demand. The MBA says the number of people applying for mortgages dropped 1.2% last week alone. Mortgage demand has dropped by nearly a third compared to a year ago. More expensive to buy a home. And if you think renting could be an option, think again. The latest data shows rent has nearly doubled in some cities across the United States in the past year. And Denisville Zoe reports. While cities in New York and California have the most expensive rentals across the country, some smaller cities are experiencing the biggest rent hikes instead. There are certain markets where rentals have gone stratospherically high. I mean, Richard Rubin is CEO of Republic. His company purchases underperforming commercial properties, like hotels and office buildings, and turns them into affordable housing, mostly studios and one-bedrooms. Uh, North Carolina is a very good example. Cities like Raleigh, Charlotte, um, Durham, um, Fayetteville, they, they've all experienced massive uh, uh, rental increases for a number of reasons. In Raleigh, North Carolina, rents increased by an average of 42% for a one-bedroom. Greensboro, North Carolina tops the list with a whopping 75% increase in rent year over year. St. Louis, Missouri, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and Baltimore, Maryland experienced the sharpest decrease in rent for one-bedrooms, dropping anywhere from 25% up to 40% in rent. Phil Zoe, NTD News. Down on Wall Street, stocks performed a little better today after a red day yesterday. The Dow added 30 points, one-tenth of a percent. S&P gained 13 points, three-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq gained 86 points, seven-tenths of a percent. Nasdaq was down 5% yesterday, though. And America's national debt is getting closer and closer to $31 trillion. It's currently at $30.9 trillion, but it's continuing to grow. The national debt is the amount of money the federal government has borrowed. Worldwide, the United States has borrowed by far the most. This chart shows the world's top borrowers. As you can see, we've borrowed twice as much as Japan, which is at $15 trillion. China's a little over $10 trillion. Now, for more insight, we spoke with economist Robert Wright. He's a senior faculty fellow at AIER and the author of One Nation Under Debt. Wright says the government borrows when it spends more money than it receives in taxes. It's in the incentive of politicians to do that, because if it doesn't raise people's taxes uh, today, uh, the people people aren't uh, peeved off about it, right? It's it's a way to give uh, or to create the illusion that the government is doing more than it's actually doing. Wright says he believes politicians are doing this for purely their own political gain, and they're just kicking the can down the road. Some examples of this include the stimulus payments for giving student loan debt and helping Ukraine. Here's right on how future generations will end up paying for all of this. They have to, to, to 
to pay the debt off, uh, and that means higher taxes. Or if we just print money, instead of actually taxing uh, resources away from people, if the government just prints the money, then that's inflationary. The debt's only been rising for the past couple of decades. People attribute the increases under the Obama administration to the stimulus that was designed to get us out of the 2008 financial crisis. People attribute the increases under Trump to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And of course, there's COVID-19 pandemic. But aside from those special policy decisions, there's also what some call entitlement or mandatory spending. The three largest items are Medicare and Medicaid, Social Security and Defense. Medicare and Medicaid, of course, are medical insurance and assistance programs created for the elderly and those with low incomes. Social Security is a government system that gives payments to people who are retired, disabled or unemployed or for some other reason they need help. And defense refers to the United States military, which defends the American homeland, protects our interests internationally, and deters war. So how can we get a grip on our growing national debt? We spoke with economist Vance Ginn. He's the president of Ginn Economic Consulting and the former chief economist at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Ginn says the federal government simply needs to spend less. If you just slow the growth rate of spending, which they can do, you wouldn't necessarily need to cut things. We just need to grow the budget by less than what we have been in the past. The roles of government have expanded far more than the limited roles that were set out in our Constitution here in the United States. When you really need to get back to covering just for national defense in an efficient manner, a, a court system that can uphold private property rights and contract law, um, and maybe a couple of other public goods. But otherwise, we should be really thinking about you know things like getting rid of the Department of Education, getting rid of the Department of Energy, um, getting rid of the Department of Homeland Security, some of these things that can be put into other agencies and departments to reduce the bureaucracy. Legendary investor Warren Buffett once said, a growing country can always handle a growing amount of debt. That's as long as it doesn't grow faster, the debt that is, grow faster than the country does. He said that back in 2013, but right now in 2022, that's exactly what's happening. Here's a chart of our national debt as a percentage of GDP or as a percentage of the size of the economy. Our debt levels exceeded GDP back in the Trump administration and skyrocketed during COVID. At its peak, it was 135%. The U.S. is planning on spending $900 million in electric vehicle charging stations. The president made the announcement in a speech at the Detroit Auto Show today. So today... I'm pleased to announce we're approving funding for the first 35 states, including Michigan, to build their own electric charging infrastructure throughout their state. U.S. Congress and Biden have pledged tens of billions of dollars to speed the transition of EVs. Still, gas-powered vehicles are well represented at the Detroit Auto Show. Last year, the president set a goal to have half of new car sales to be EVs or plug-in hybrids by 2030. Time is ticking. Over in Europe, it's lights out for the iconic Eiffel Tower, an hour earlier that is, as part of efforts to save energy this winter. The Eiffel Tower is currently lit until 1 a.m., turning the lights off at 12.45 p.m. would save about 4% of energy. Countries around Europe are looking for ways to cut energy consumption in case Russia completely cuts it off from natural gas supplies. Along with that, Paris will lower the t water temperature in municipal, pool municipal pools until they're heating public buildings, city's mayor said today.
getting bad. The European Commission today unveiled a series of protocols to curb the energy price spike that has skyrocketed years, rocked Europe in the wake of Russia's conflict in Ukraine. And the fake quarter reports. Europe has unveiled plans to curb soaring energy prices. On Wednesday, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said it was time to limit earnings for low-cost producers that don't use gas. She set out the plans in an address to the European Parliament in Strasbourg. We are proposing a cap on the revenues of companies that produce electricity at low costs. These companies are making revenues they never accounted for, they never even dreamt of. Under the proposals, fossil fuel firms will also have to share the profits they make from soaring energy prices. EU governments will use any money raised to help firms and consumers with their bills. The Commission chief said she would also propose ways for member states to cut their energy usage. It all comes after Russia slashed gas supplies to Europe in retaliation for sanctions. Von der Leyen says the EU is working fast to adapt. Last year, Russian gas accounted for 40 percent of our imported gas. Today it's down to 9 percent. But we also see that Russia keeps actively manipulating our energy market. I mean, they prefer to flare the gas instead of sending it to Europe according to the contracts that are existing. EU gas storage facilities are now around 84 percent full, a level experts say looks healthy. But analysts say Europe will still need deep cuts in usage to avoid winter shortages. Member states will now haggle over the Commission's proposals, but it's hoped a final deal can be struck this month. This type of government intervention has often made things much worse. We'll wait and see. Renewable energy is getting cheaper, apparently. A new Oxford University study says switching to renewable energy right now could save people trillions of dollars. Prices of solar technology decreased by almost 90 percent between 2009 and 2019. So should we commit to begin transitioning to renewables? Well, it's actually a little more to the picture than just cost. Turns out renewable energy sources like solar actually harm the environment to a degree. While solar panels can produce electricity without harming the environment, the materials in the panels themselves are harmful to the planet. The problem arises when it comes time to dispose of the panels at the end of their life cycle. There are not really a lot of options when it comes to disposing them. One option, just throw them away in landfills. But that wouldn't be very environmentally friendly. The planet's already producing billions of tons of waste and we would just be adding to the world's landfill problem. <clears throat> now, it's estimated that by 2050, solar panel waste will reach 86 million tons. It's the same as over 200 Empire State Buildings. Another option is to try to recycle the solar panels. But that has problems of its own. One of the biggest, slow. It would take decades to recycle 86 million tons of solar panels. Another problem is that recycling costs more than the economic value of the materials recovered. In other words, not really cost-effective. Why would you bother? Just buy the materials themselves. Toshiba Environmental Solutions has said that, quote, low demand for scrap and the high cost of employing workers to disassemble the aluminum frames and other components will make it difficult to create a profitable business unless recycling companies can charge several times more than the target set by Japan's environment ministry.
One Chinese expert told the South China Morning Post that if a recycling plant carries out every step by the book, the products can end up being more expensive than the new raw materials. And this is why most solar panels just end up getting thrown into landfills with all the toxic materials still intact. And this is one of the ways solar panels harm the environment. One of the most harmful chemicals in solar panels is cadmium. Cadmium is recognized as a toxic substance by the United States Environmental Protection Agency. But in a study published in the U.S. National Library of Medicine, it showed that cadmium can leach out of the solar panel cells in landfills and get into the earth, posing harm to the environment, obviously. But not only do solar panels present issues to the environment at the end of their life cycle, they also do so during their life. It's because solar panel produces electricity only during the day, so you need a lot of them to generate enough electricity. That means you need a lot of land to install the panels. But where do you get this land? Many times, you have to clear out large areas containing wildlife on their natural habitats to get it. One of the most well-known examples of how solar farms affect wildlife is the Ivanpah Solar Plant in California. It covers around 3,500 acres of land in the Mojave Desert. The plant was built in an ecologically intact desert wildlife habitat. The U.S. Bureau of Land Management estimated loss or significant degradation of 3,500 acres of desert tortoise habitat. plant also affects other wildlife like birds. The plant is killing up to 6,000 birds every year because the solar plant gets as hot as 800 degrees. And the sight of birds being burned to death is so common, the workers have nicknamed the smoldering birds streamers. Cute because they leave tiny wisps of white smoke behind as they burn up in the sky. Using renewable energy sources does have some benefits, but those benefits come with some tricky challenges. Sometimes those challenges are not so much technological, that's because we've had modern solar panels since the 60s, but instead those challenges are natural. Tesla CEO Elon Musk recently said that one of the biggest challenges the world has ever faced is the transition to sustainable energy and to sustainable economy. That will take decades to complete, adding that we need to use fossil fuels in the meantime. We'll keep you updated. So the come this evening. South Korea issues arrest warrant for a fallen crypto star four months after his platform collapsed. Why? And NASA getting ready to test its first planetary defense system to see if it can change the course of an asteroid. That much more coming up on NTD Business. court in South Korea issued an arrest warrant for Do Kwon. He's the founder of the now discontinued Terraform Labs cryptocurrency ecosystem. The court in Seoul issued a warrant for Do Kwon and five others in allegations that include violations of the nation's capital markets law, according to a text message from the prosecutor's office. The warrant comes four months after the collapse of the $40 billion Terra ecosystem and its algorithmic stablecoin. 
It's the first domino to fall in this year's crypto winter. Kwan has said that he plans to cooperate when the time comes in an interview with crypto media startup Coinage that floated the prospect of jail time. Kwan said, life is long. And NASA is preparing for a test mission to demonstrate the world's first planetary defense system it's designed to deflect an asteroid from potential doomsday collision with Earth. Angela Johnson reports. NASA wants to find out if it can push an asteroid off a doomsday collision course with Earth by crashing a spacecraft right into it. Consider it the world's first test for the world's first planetary defense system. Andrea Riley is a program executive for the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART. We're constantly looking in the skies um, for potential new asteroids and threats. And so this test will help, uh, you know, give us confidence that we do have a mitigation strategy should a, should a you know, threat ever be identified. The spacecraft launched last November from California. Its target, a moonlet called Dimorphos, which is about the size of a football stadium. The mission will test the spacecraft's ability to alter the asteroid's trajectory with sheer kinetic force, plowing into it at high speed to nudge the space boulder off course just enough to keep our planet, at least theoretically, out of harm's way. Dimorphos poses no actual threat to Earth and is tiny, especially in comparison to the asteroid that hit 66 million years ago, leading to the extinction of the dinosaurs. But dark coordination lead Nancy Chabot says smaller ones are more common and theoretically a bigger concern. The regional devastation could be the size of a city or a small state or a small country. And so it is very devastating, very rare, no known threat. But that's why the focus a lot of time is on objects of that size and why Dimorphos is such a perfect target for this first planetary defense test mission. What a spectacular view of DART. Cameras on the spacecraft and a smaller one nearby will capture all the action up to one and a half seconds before impact, says system engineer Elena Adams. So you really are seeing it real time. You're seeing that impact. The mission's big finale is set to take place on September 26th. For DART mission engineer Michelle Chen, it can't come soon enough. We are so excited about it. It's two weeks away. So now my heart rate has increased a little bit. <laughs> Rocket didn't really look like a match for that asteroid, did it? We talked a little earlier about surging energy prices in Europe. It's also hitting Italy. Now debate on how to cook pasta and save on energy, sparking a little outrage among Italian cooks. Today's Andrew Thomas has more on the controversy. A majority of Italians think that cooking pasta without a burning flame is heresy. But Italian households and restaurant owners are concerned about rising gas and electricity bills. Well, yes, pasta can cook by itself, without a flame. If you reach the 100 degrees Celsius boiling temperature, you can turn the flame off and the pasta will continue cooking, but it will cook really badly. Luigina Pantalone's family has been running the Sabatino restaurant in central Rome for almost 100 years. She doesn't think that saving on gas is a viable solution for her business. We were just getting out from the pandemic that really knocked us out. And just now that we are working and making some profits, we are suffering the increase of gas bills and energy. This is creating a lot of problems to our business management because we're trying not to change our prices, but I'm not sure for how long we will resist. The gas price did decrease slightly over the past few days, but energy markets analyst Gabrielle Massini is cautious. 
We must wait and see if it becomes a solid trend. Only a few days ago, we were at 300 euros per megawatt hour. Today, we are at 200. It is a very, very nervous performance of this index. Retired cook Aurora Farina experimented in her kitchen to settle the pasta debate. She used both cooking methods simultaneously. The result, she said, was indisputable. Pasta has to be cooked with an active flame under the pot. No, the result cannot be the same, because this way, without a flame, we're macerating the pasta. We're not cooking it. Boiling water is necessary to keep the cooking pasta at a constant temperature. For traditionalists, there's an easy tip to save on energy. Keep the lid on the pot while you bring the water to a boil. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Things aren't looking good in Europe. That's the latest NTD Business team and myself, Paul Graney. Follow me on Twitter, though, if you're there. Now, if you have any news, tips, or feedback for this show, email us, business at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.